The story of Noah's Ark and the Flood is one of the most familiar stories in the whole Bible. It's been the subject of countless pieces of art, from paintings to poems to movies, and not just by Christians. Even Hollywood has gotten in on the act. From comedic modern retellings of the story to dramatic, action-packed, CGI-filled films that try to capture the epic scale of it. It's also been a source of repeated controversy, from geological and archaeological arguments over whether or not any physical evidence exists to support this story of a catastrophic flood, to debates over whether or not this story reveals a God who is worthy or not of worship, or maybe a God who is instead some kind of wicked power who does not hesitate to commit an act of senseless and inexcusable violence through an attempted genocide of the entire human race. Not too long ago, the English scientist and frequent critic of Christianity, Richard Dawkins, he posted a tweet that seems to reflect both of these criticisms and debates in a single sentence. Faith heads, he said, Faith heads desperate for archaeological evidence of Noah's Ark. You'd think they'd prefer a story of mass murder by God not to be true. Now, maybe that's why, for as famous as this story is, maybe it's why some Christians tend to shy away from it and don't really talk about it that often. Because they think that if they do, they'll get drawn into some obscure debate about geology or archaeology or that they'll have to defend an action of God that really seems to run contrary to the central Christian claim that God is love. But perhaps that's because we don't really understand this story. Hopefully, at the end of this session, hopefully we'll all understand it just a little better. And I think the first step to understanding this story better is to recognize that, in many ways, it's not actually that unique. There were, in fact, a variety of ancient stories about a great flood, a, a variety of these stories in ancient Mesopotamia, and a number of them have survived until today. One of the most famous and one of the oldest of them, known as the Atrahasis Epic, it actually predates the book of Genesis, and it has a number of parallels to the story of Noah and the flood. For instance, it too tells the story of a time in primeval history when the gods were angered by humanity and decided to wipe out the entire human race with a flood. But one man, a man named Atrahasis, he and his family escaped because a god instructed him to build a boat, which he then loaded with his family and various birds and animals, thus preserving life. And when you compare the story in Genesis with that one, or some of the other ancient Babylonian flood narratives, you might think that there's nothing really all that special about the story of Noah in Genesis. That it's just one more version of an attempt to remember and narrate some, some ancient catastrophic flood. But in fact, there are multiple differences between the story of Noah and those other stories. And those differences are very important. After all, the very first readers of the book of Genesis they were no doubt familiar with some of those other stories. 
And they probably wouldn't have been all that surprised at the similarities. What would have really captured their attention was where Genesis differed and how those differences changed their understanding of the nature of God. In this session, I'd like to explore some of those differences and why they matter. And to do so, I'd like to pose two basic questions to this story. First, why does God send the flood? And then second, why and how does he bring salvation through it? Let's start with that first question. Why the flood? According to the Atrahasis epic, the reason that the gods send a flood to destroy the human race, it's actually a rather petty and selfish one. You see, the reason the gods had originally created human beings in the first place was so that the humans could do the work that they didn't want to do and provide food for them. Humans could be tasked with digging canals and growing crops and raising herds of animals. And then they could feed the gods through sacrifices. And that, that all worked very well, at least at first. But as the centuries went on and babies were born and more and more people began to fill the earth, the gods, especially the main god, Enlil, became very angry with the amount of noise that they were making. At one point, Enlil addresses the other gods and says, the noise of mankind has become too much. I am losing sleep over their racket. So he orders a plague to wipe out all the humans. And when that doesn't work, he tries to kill them with a drought. And then finally, he orders another god to send a worldwide flood. That's why the gods send a flood, at least according to, to this one ancient Mesopotamian myth. But that's not at all what we read in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, we're told something very different. There, the problem is not that the humans have multiplied and filled the earth. There, the problem is that wickedness and violence have multiplied and filled the earth. In verse 5, we're told that the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth and that the intention of human hearts was only evil continually. And then several verses later, Genesis says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Remember God's instructions to the man and woman in chapter one. They were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was their purpose, to be the image of God and to, to fill the earth with his, with his image and to bring order and rule to creation. By Genesis 6, it seems that they're not just failing at that task. They are doing the exact opposite. Now, there are long-standing debates about what Genesis means when in chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took them as their wives. Church fathers argued over whether or not these sons of God were some kind of supernatural angels, the fallen, which is what the word Nephilim means, their offspring, or whether they are perhaps maybe sons of Seth who are marrying daughters of Cain. But regardless, what's clear is that they are violating God's intended order for creation 
There is a violence there. They are grabbing and seizing women. They are filling the earth with lust and violence. God created an earth which was good and in which he took delight. And these humans, they are destroying it. And that helps to explain why God responds the way he does. As some people read the story of Noah and they come away with a feeling that God seems to be angry and vindictive, that his response is, is totally unjustified, just like those gods in the Atrahasis epic, or that he simply overreacts. But Genesis makes it very clear that what God is doing with the flood is simply bringing the natural and necessary consequence of humanity's actions to bear. In fact, you can see this in the language that it uses in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Some translations of this passage say that human flesh is corrupt and that in response, God chooses to destroy it. But in Hebrew, these two words, corrupt and destroy, they're actually variants of the same word. And you can see the effect of this in the more literal translation of the Old Testament scholar, Ellen Davis. Here's how she translates it. The earth was brought to ruin before God. The earth was filled with wrongdoing. God saw the earth, look, ruined. For all flesh had ruined its way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, an end to all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with wrongdoing because of them. And now I am about to bring them to ruin with the earth. I've always been very struck by something that the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf once said. He said, in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In the Atrahasis epic, the gods send the flood for their own selfish, vindictive reasons. The humans are just being too loud. But the God of Genesis is very different. The flood he sends is not some petty act of violence or some unnecessary cruelty. To the contrary, in Genesis, God brings ruin to human flesh to save them and his creation from ruination. He wields the sword, as Wolf puts it, to bring an end to the violence. And and that brings me to the second question that I wanted to pose to the story. We've talked about why God sends the flood, but we might also ask, how does this story help us to understand salvation? Or to put it a bit differently, where is the redemption in this story? Now, Christians have long connected the story of Noah and the flood with the experience of salvation. Ancient church fathers such as Origen and Cyprian and Cyril and Augustine, they all read the story of the ark, not only as a historical event, but as a kind of symbolic expression of what takes place in salvation. And if you think about it, there, there really are many similarities. Take God's selection of Noah, for instance. Genesis says that Noah was blameless in his generation. And you might think, that means that unlike the rest of humanity, he was, he was without sin, he was guiltless, and that's why God saved him. But that's not really true. 
In chapter 6, verse 8, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that expression, to find favor in someone's eyes, it's an expression that occurs multiple times in Genesis. And when it does, it almost invariably refers to a favor that is not earned, a favor that is freely given. And that seems to be very much how Genesis is using it here as well. As the Old Testament and Hebrew scholar John Goldengay puts it, Noah did not win favor with God. He found it. Maybe he wasn't even looking for it. He found favor not because he was righteous, but so that he might be righteous. Of course, the New Testament says that the same thing is true of us. Salvation is a gift. We do not earn it. We do not win favor with God. We find it. Not because we are righteous, but so that we might be righteous. Interestingly, the New Testament also links the story of the flood to Christian baptism. In his first epistle, for instance, the apostle Peter talks about the flood and how God brought Noah and his family through it safely. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, early Christians made a big deal of this connection between the flood and baptism. And they often said that the church is like the ark in the story of Noah. Because in and through the church, God is rescuing a society of people, keeping them safe from the destructive waters of sin that are at work in the world. Now, I think that's a very interesting analogy, but at an even more basic level, maybe one of the reasons that 1 Peter and other early Christian texts link the flood to baptism is because one thing that both of them teach us is that salvation isn't just a matter of making some small improvements. We don't just need a little bit of dirt and grime washed off our bodies, as the Apostle Peter puts it. We need something far more drastic. To quote one contemporary theologian, both the flood and baptism tell us about our sin. In the days of Noah, even God doesn't try to repair things. He extinguishes all flesh and turns the globe into a graveyard. There's a message there. Sinners need something more radical than reform. We need to die. That may sound heartlessly stern, but it's our only hope. In moments of desperate clarity, we want to end it all and start over. Baptism says we're right to seek death. You see, the flood isn't just a story of judgment. It is ultimately a story of redemption. When God covers the earth with water, he isn't just bringing death, he's bringing new life. In the beginning of chapter 8, after the waters have prevailed on the earth for 150 days, Genesis says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. The Hebrew word for wind, ruach, it's the same word that Genesis uses in chapter 1, verse 2, when it says that the spirit, the wind, the breath of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The account of creation begins with a breath over the waters. And now, after the flood, it appears that that breath has returned. 
And later in chapter 9, God blesses Noah and his sons and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now all of this, again, it sounds very much like we, what we read in chapter 1. And it's a sign that through the flood, God is working to bring about redemption from ruination. Of course, that doesn't mean that the curse of sin has vanished. Even in the words that God uses when he blesses Noah and his sons, he talks about the fear and dread of humanity falling upon the animals. And he declares the punishment for murder. In those words, it's pretty clear that the problem of sin remains. It has not yet been fully dealt with. And yet, as is so often true throughout this entire book, this story is a story of redemption and hope. God does not abandon his earth or his human creatures to ruination. Nor does he simply dismiss or overlook the darkness and violence of their lives. He faces it head on. He deals with it. And he finds a way to bring salvation and new life out of the worst and bleakest of conditions. That is the story of Noah. And that, as we shall continue to see, that is the story of Genesis. Thank you.